be exalted in this place, O oh God, for that's your proper place to be. We acknowledge and worship you in this place. God, as we live our lives on this earth and we intersect the glory and the garbage, the glory of who you are and your promises and your salvation that's going to come full and true when you come again. But in the meantime, we experience the garbage of the sinful nature and the fallen world. God, will you meet us in that place and lift our heart, especially today as we look to your word and we look at one of the foundational principles that we need to know to live in this life. God, would you instruct us, would you guide us, would you teach us that we live wisely in this life in the midst of this intersection of glory and garbage, God? Will you help us, we ask, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I wanted to begin... Uh, this morning with uh, a letter. I wanted to read a letter that's from a very wise pastor that I respect and admire. Um, And the context of this letter is that this church where this pastor serves, uh, the youth group was doing a trunk or treat event where they're having people come. And also in the midst of this, um, the church was going through a series on prayer. And um, on top of that, Uh, it was noted that some of the people within the church were taking their kids trick-or-treating. And someone wrote the pastor a letter that said, um, how could you as a church do a series on prayer and be about exalting Jesus Christ when you endorse through youth group and other people there the practice of witchcraft by uh, allowing people and and encouraging people to participate in practices that uh, the founder of the satanic church, Anton LaVey, said were Satan's practices. And so they wrote the letter to this pastor, and uh, this is the pastor's response. I wanted to read it to you and then explain to you why I decided to open this way. This pastor writes this, Thanks so much for taking the time to express your feelings about this issue. I hope you always feel free to do that. We welcome feedback, input, insight, and concerns. We are all trying to do our best to follow and exalt Jesus, but we certainly do not always get it right. So we always want to listen. Having said that, in a spirit of dialogue between brothers and friends, let me tell you my take on the Halloween issue and why I'm okay with our youth ministry doing trunk or treat. Each of us should have the freedom of our convictions on ways to handle certain issues in the culture like this one, so I'm very comfortable that we are probably going to disagree on this one, but let's lovingly respect each other's convictions and walk out this conviction in love. First of all, if we thought we were doing anything to encourage people to worship Satan, we certainly would not do it. I believe that 99.999% of the parents that take their kids out trick-or-treating on Halloween, including the non-Christian ones, see no connection between the event and the worship of Satan. It has indeed become in our culture, I believe, a sweet, innocent day for the vast, vast majority of people to let their kids dress up in cute costumes and walk around the neighborhood and chat with neighbors and meet other families along the way. I love doing it each year with my grandkids as I did with my kids. It is actually the one day of the year when all the people in my neighborhood come to my door and I get to show a simple act of love and appreciation to their kids. I find it very warm and inviting without any sinister or satanic association. Anton LaVey 
can claim it as Satan's day all he wants, but it is not. Jesus Christ is Lord of all 365 days in our calendar. October 31st is Jesus' day like all the rest. He and his followers, referring to Anton LaVey, have no right or authority or power to tell me that I'm worshiping Satan by participating in an innocent cultural practice of costumes, candy collecting, and chatting with neighbors and friends. There's a passage in the Bible that helps me to this conclusion. It's 1 Corinthians 10, 23-30, and it discusses another issue that Christians wondered about, eating meat sacrificed to idols. Obviously, this was in this day and age, but Paul's answer was, eat anything that was sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. Later on, he says to eat if Later on, he says not to eat if someone invites you over and says this meat is sacrificed to an idol. In other words, if he invites you over to a meat honoring a false god, don't go for conscience sake. Don't go if it's clear that you're participating in an idolatrous meal or worship event. The equivalent for Halloween would be if neighbors said, hey, come over to our, our house and join us in a worship to Satan that we're going to do in our living room and your kids will get some candy. Obviously, I wouldn't go. Of course, no one does that, but I have a slight application of that for the Halloween context. If I'm walking around my neighborhood and there's a house that has all kinds of creepy death images, I just pass by it. I won't encourage that, nor do I want to scare kids. But I also will not cede ownership of any day to Satan. He owns nothing, and he is a defeated foe. And what I actually find when I walk around is a bunch of friendly neighbors who are delighted to see cute kids and bless them with some candy. The last thing on their minds is that they're somehow honoring or recognizing Satan by doing so. Halloween is not an idol in our country's soul. The idols that we need to fight against are money, sex, power, politics, love of pleasure, sports, recreation, and on and on and on. There are lots of other powerful competitors for the hearts of people in our culture, and I pray a fight against those. But from my perspective, Halloween and the direct love of worship and Satan is not one of them. I'm 63 years old, and I've never once met a true follower of Satan worship. Satan is much more subtle and insidious in our culture. Christians are far much more likely to be trapped up with the love of money or busyness or pornography than Halloween. One man's opinion and then he signed his name. Now, I begin that with that letter for two reasons. First of all, um, Halloween is this week, and as a pastor, I often get asked the question, is it okay to do things, and would we participate in those things? And I feel like that letter in truth and wisdom and love uh, presents it better than I ever could. So there you have that. The second thing, reason I start with that letter is because we're going to talk about a topic this morning, and in that letter, we're given the foundational principle of the topic, and the topic we're going to talk about this morning is spiritual warfare. We're getting ready to wrap up our series of Ephesians, where we're going through a series, the book of Ephesians in a series called The Amazing Christian, and as we wrap this up, we come to this topic of spiritual warfare, and I believe what that letter hits on is the foundational principle we need to keep as we look at this topic, and that principle is Jesus Christ is Lord, always, forever. There is no wavering from that. He is always Lord and will always be Lord. And in this text today, Paul is giving us a brief glimpse kind of behind the curtain. He's showing us the ongoing battle of darkness and light. 
He's giving us an unbelievable look at a reality that sometimes we don't understand. Well, well, all the time we don't totally understand it, but sometimes we don't even recognize it is there. There's usually two errors of the church when it comes to this topic of spiritual warfare. Either on the one side of the pendulum, we begin to see a demon or demonic activity behind every aspect of life. It's like there's a demon behind every tree. Or we go on the other side where we don't acknowledge it at all and we don't even acknowledge that Satan exists. And both sides of the pendulum are dangerous for the church. The church is engaged in a battle and Satan is real. However, we have to have wisdom and understanding of how we walk this out. And I'd like to give a warning here. If anybody tells you they're an expert in spiritual warfare, do not believe them. Because none of us are experts in this. We have knowledge of God's word and he gives us direction of how to handle this and walk this out. However, there's a lot here that we don't know about that the Apostle Paul did. The Apostle Paul was, had an insight into these things that we don't have today. But what I want you to gather as we dive into this is that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Ephesians chapter 6. Uh, I'll be on uh, page 1039 in the Worship Center Bibles, Ephesians 6, and I'm going to be focusing on verses 10 to 18 as we wrap up this series where we will see that we are in a battle. And Paul begins this instruction of how to live out this battle with what I call the battle cry. The battle cry is the thing that sets the foundation of how we are to walk in spiritual warfare. Look at, look at verse 10. It says, Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Other uh, translations say be strong in the Lord, but I really like this one. I'm going to tell you why in a second. But it says be strengthened by the Lord and with his vast strength. What is spiritual warfare? Spiritual warfare is engaging the evil practices of darkness that we may not always understand in this life. And it's giving us, this text is going to give us wisdom. Paul assumes that we share his worldview, that there is a world going on beyond our senses. There's a world going on beyond our natural world that we can't see, taste, touch, or feel, but it's all the more real, just the same. And Paul begins with the very first thing he wants us to understand as we engage in battle with the spiritual world, and that is the most critical thing to awaken us from passivity is that we are to be strengthened by the Lord. I love how that's worded. We are to be strengthened by the Lord. We are to stand, and we're going to see that this is an imperative he uses throughout this verse, this uh, scripture passage. We are to stand and allow God to come and give us strength for this battle. We cannot fight this battle in our own power. We cannot fight this battle with our own knowledge. We cannot fight this battle in our own strength. Our role as believers and followers of Jesus is to stand in God's presence, be engaged with him, and allow him to strengthen us for this. We come to the battle weak. That is the position we should come in when it comes to spiritual battle. We don't come to the battle strong and prideful and thinking we can take this. We have to enter into these places weak so that God comes and fills us with his strength. Look at the arsenal we have at our disposal for this battle at the end of verse 10. Be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. 
By his vast strength, you engage this battle with the strength and the power of Almighty God. He, God, has given his people, his followers, his church, access to his power for this battle. And that's a powerful thing for us to grab. And we stand in his strength. Satan would love for us to look at him and view him as this little cartoon with a little pitchfork or a little pesty bug that flies around or to blow him off totally. And we're not to ignore him altogether, but we must also realize that he is calculated. He is subtle. He is clever. He's not stupid. And we're going to get into that more in a minute But we need to understand that we have a vast, amazing arsenal of power to stand in this battle. And God gives us that power because it says we stand by his vast strength, not in our own. The strength that God gives us is no match for Jesus Christ. We have his strength and we can defeat him as we stand in that strength. A few words of instruction. First of all, you have to understand that God and Satan are not equal. God and Satan are not equal. Sometimes when we picture this battle or this warfare going on, it's like we picture this cosmic boxing match where there's God in one corner and Satan in the other and they come out and they fight and when good things happen in the world, God wins and when bad things happen in the world, Satan wins and there's like this constant battle. That's not the battle this is about. It's also not about two armies that are fighting and one army wins and then one army loses. No, no, no. Satan is defeated. It's a battle that's done and and Christ defeated him at the cross and he begun and set forth the complete desolation of Satan's power and it will be fully realized and completed when Christ comes again. But Satan is a defeated foe. God and Satan are not equal. God is omnipotent, meaning he's all-powerful. Satan is very limited in his power. God is all-knowledge. He knows everything. He's omniscient. Satan is not all-knowing. He doesn't know everything. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once at the same time. Satan is not. So many people think Satan is everywhere, that he's out. No, Satan is very limited in where he can be. He can only be in one place at one time. We do not have a God who's on the same level as Satan or Satan on the same level as God. There's no rival between God. There's no equal between God. God is the creator, most powerful, almighty person in the entire universe, and he rules and reigns over all of it. Satan is an angelic creature, it says in Ezekiel 28. And Satan can do nothing, he can do nothing, he can do nothing without God's permission and control, it says in Job 1 and Luke 22. He's limited. He's not the counterpart to God, it says in Jude 1, Revelation 12. However, he is the accuser and the enemy of human beings. He accuses us and harasses us, and he is allowed temporarily for a season to roam in this earth and do things. It says in Zechariah 3 and 1 Peter 5. But a time is coming when Christ returns where his, uh, his limited power and effect in this world will be rendered powerless, and he'll be destroyed and vanquished forever, the Bible says. But in the season between the cross and the second return, there is this place where Satan is allowed to attack and harass and ensnare, but we have to understand that he doesn't have this 
of the power beyond limitation. Satan is strong. His attacks are relentless. They are real. But the power of Jesus Christ is greater and can defend us against every attack of the evil one. So now Paul turns to how we are supposed to live practically in the light of this. And we're supposed to do that by looking at this concept called armor that would be wise to carry in a battle. Look at verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes of the devil. Since we are fighting in a spiritual battle, we need spiritual armor. You cannot fight this fight in your own emotional strength. You cannot fight this fight in your own mental awareness. You cannot fight this fight in your own physical power because it's a fight that isn't in this physical realm. It's in a different realm. And because of that, you need the armor that comes from God. You need his armor. And what I love about this is we're going to see as this passage unfolds, our command is to stand. And the picture in the text is that if we as his people stand and God puts his armor on us. You see, we don't, it doesn't originate with us. We don't create it. We don't make it happen. He brings and places it on us because it's impossible for us to fight this battle with what we have alone. So what are the reasons for the armor? Look at verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. Verse 12 gives us three specific reasons that we need this armor protecting us head to toe. The first one is this, that our enemy is not a flesh and blood. Our enemy is Satan and his demons, and they live in a realm that we, may not un- we don't understand fully. They're spiritual beings. They cannot be detected by the five senses. We can't understand this spiritual realm or world by sight or taste or touch or hearing. It's beyond our senses. And ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, humankind have been addicted to this world and this world alone. It's like we are set and focused on this world. Everything that's in front of us is all that we know. It's all we live. Sometimes we live our lives oblivious to the fact that there's any other dimension of spiritual realm outside of what we can see, touch, feel, taste, and hear. But there is. And that's the world that is active here. And because the world is active and it's, it's not a flesh and blood, we need this armor so that we understand. We need to take up spiritual eyes and spiritual ears. And we do that by reading God's word and seeing what it says here. And then when we do so, we can understand this realm is more real than the realm that we live in today. So we need his armor. Second, we struggle against an organized army. In the second part of verse 12, he lays it out there. Rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, darkness, evil, spiritual forces. This is a complex system that Paul had the privilege of looking in. And we have to understand that we walk in the places of authority. Paul's going to see things and he saw things in this realm that we didn't. That's why when certain people went to try to cast demons out of people in the book of Acts, the demons came out and they said, we know Jesus, we know Paul, but who are you? 
You see, Paul had a level of this that we don't know, so we have to come to this with humility and understanding. And what we do see here is that there's a complex system of demonic activity that we don't know. What we have to be careful of is that some people take these verses and they kind of map out the strategic org chart of the demonic levels and they say, well, these demons go look over this side of the world and these demons do this and these demons do that and these have the authority. No, no, that's all nonsense. The Bible doesn't teach us that. It's just telling us that there's this complexity to it. It's not, we don't have to spend our time figuring out the org chart for Satan and all of his minions. That's a waste of time. We don't need to have that knowledge. You know why? Because it doesn't matter how Satan is organized. He's going to be defeated by Jesus Christ finally and for all when he comes again. He's already been defeated through the cross. It doesn't matter how he's organized. It doesn't matter where it's at. He's a defeated foe. The point is we need gospel protection because this demonic realm is complex. The third thing we see is this force is made up of unbridled wickedness and evil. Satan is evil. And his evil is a level that we cannot fathom as human beings. Kent Hughes says this, Satan has no conscience, no compassion, no remorse, no morals. He feeds on pain, anguish, and filth. He's at a level of evil that the human brain cannot comprehend. There's no potential for redemption. There's no limit to the potential evil. If he were not restrained by God, we would see utter destruction in our world. And we see glimpses of that in our world today. When we hear of mass shootings and the evil and violent crime and and sickness and cancer and devastating wars and acts, senseless things all have their root in the demonic realm. When we see dysfunction and disharmony in families and marriages and neighborhoods and churches, we can know that Satan is at work and that's why we need this armor. We cannot fight alone. So those are the reasons for the armor. Let's now look at some of the benefits of this armor, why we're glad we have this armor in the first place. Look at verse 13. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. One of the reasons, the benefits, I'm sorry, the benefits of this armor is that we will be able to stand and resist these schemes of the, uh, the evil one. We'll be able to stand and resist Satan when he tries to attack. We have a fearsome enemy, but we are protected by one greater, and there's no reason for us to live in fear. God is all over us. Satan cannot overpower that. We do not need to cower and panic and run. In Jesus Christ, we are victorious over Satan's power. Notice that we're not called to take an offense against this realm. We're not called to run in defense. The imperative command of this text is that we stand. We stand. We stand and we allow God to clothe us with his armor, and that's how we fight this battle. The second benefit of this armor is back in verse 11. Put on the full armor of God so that you may stand against the schemes of the evil one. Notice schemes in the text is plural. Satan has many schemes. He has many plans. Wearing God's armor allows us to stand no matter what that scheme is, no matter what those plans are. He wants to undercut our spiritual walk. 
He wants to pull us away from God the Father. The devil is defeated, but he's not dumb. And this is what I mean when I said we're going to get into the subtleness of the devil, the insidiousness of the devil. You see, what he does is he can identify a target and exploit human weakness. He knows the weaknesses of human beings, and that's what he goes after. He's not going after us through Halloween. He's going after us through our anxieties, our fears, our cares. He loves to stir up those insecurities in us that he knows that we have. And that's where he places the focus of his attack. He's much more subtle than we give him credit for. I see him attacking the church in areas of personal weakness, fear, lust, pride, arrogance. I see him attacking Christian believers through this subtle method of distracting us with devices so that we don't engage in prayer and we don't go to God and we get all caught up in things we shouldn't get caught up in. That's the place of attack. That's the place of the battleground. Living in God's armor helps us stand against those things. Satan's greatest move took place in Genesis chapter 3 when man and woman, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God and sinned. And in that moment, the Bible tells us, the entire human race after Adam and Eve were affected and broken by sin. It's called the sinful nature. We all have this propensity to sin. You don't have to be taught to sin. You just do sin. And the reason you don't have to be taught to sin and it just happens is because we're affected by this sinful nature ever since Genesis 3. And that is the greatest tool the enemy has because he likes to play on our sinful nature to get us to do things and be tempted to do wrong and to pull us into these places. Sometimes when we think of demonic activity, we always think of these exorcisms and that kind of, the greatest tool he has is your sin. That's sinful nature and he tries to get that stirred up. He tries to tantalize and get it to go. That's one of the greatest tools he has. And to escape his attack, we need to stand. We need to stand against that. We need to understand that though humankind rebelled against God and sin entered the world and we are people who are marked by sin that Jesus Christ came and because he came and he went to the cross and paid the sin that I paid for my sin paid the debt I couldn't pay now if I'm in Christ Jesus I can stand free of the penalty of sin and and if I walk and grow in that knowledge I become strong in the spirit of God that's how we fight in this battle A third benefit of this armor is that we're able to resist what's called here the evil day in verse 13. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so you may be able to resist in the evil day. That evil day is a general expression talking about the evil oppression of our time. It's talking about the fallenness of this world. It's talking about the things that attack us and the things that we hear about and see on the news. And one of the biggest things I think we need to take away from this as the church is we need to understand that when we are in life, we are in a battle. And we need to be ready. And we're going to talk about how you get ready for that. But we need first and foremost to come to that understanding that we are in a battle. When I was in the Air Force, one of the goofiest times of training we ever had was chemical warfare training before 1990. Before the year 1990, when we'd have these chemical warfare classes, everyone joked, everyone laughed. It was kind of a big joke. 
you'd have your gear on in the class and you'd, guys would fall asleep with their gear on. They had these goggles and we'd take duct tape and we'd duct tape their goggles. So when they woke up, they had no idea where they are. Guys would be sleeping. We'd tie their shoelace around the table leg and they'd get up and they'd fall. It was a big joke. Everybody laughed. But there was one chemical warfare training like no other. And that was when we got our orders in 1990 to go over to Desert Storm. And we were told there would be chemical weapons. That class, there was no joking around. That class, people were asking questions. That class, people were taking notes. That class, we were reminding each other. That class, we were testing each other. That class, we were quizzing each other. Sometimes I think the church relaxes back into this thing when they hear about Satan and spiritual warfare, and we kind of laugh it off, or we just ignore it altogether. And God, through his word, is telling us to say, wake up, we are in a battle. Now, it doesn't mean we get foolish and we start obsessing about things we shouldn't obsess about. It just means we have an awareness that we're in a battle. And because of that, God has given us armor. Look at verses 14 to 17. Stand, that's the command. Therefore, with, your, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace, in every situation take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The action you take in battle, the imperative, imperative means command. The command in this verse for every Christian is the very first word in verse 14. Stand. That's what you are to do. The picture is you stand and as Paul was dictating this letter, he was on house arrest, so he's looking at a Roman soldier, and he's seeing all the armor he has, and he's saying, the picture is you stand and you let God put on you his truth. You let God put on you the righteousness of Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross. You let God put on you the peace that Jesus Christ bought on the cross to bring you, that you're not opposed to God the Father. You're not the enemy of God the Father anymore. You are now made in a peaceful relationship with God the Father where you are his child, and you stand with faith, trusting that whatever you know and face in this world, God has defeated, and he is who he says he is. And you stand in salvation knowing that this this earth is not your home, but because of what Christ did on the cross, you are going to a place, a kingdom that's greater, where he rules and reigns over you all, and where Satan and sickness and disease will be defeated once and for all, and you have that understanding, and you face this life and the reminders of all that by pouring your heart over God's word. This is the sword. This is what it takes to stand in a battle. These things protect us from the devil's schemes. These things protect us from spiritual rulers and authorities and powers of darkness and forces of evil in the day of evil, this present age. So the call is we immerse ourselves, we place ourselves under these things. It's a lifestyle of battle submitted to Jesus Christ. And it looks like us scheduling our lives to spend time with God. That's how we enact this battle. Look at verse 18. Pray at all times in the spirit with every prayer and request and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. We pray and we stay alert. We enact these pieces of armor and we live in them so that we are able to stand and resist those things. 
prayer, conversation with God, the Bible, saturating your mind with God's word, worship, living out the benefits of the cross, the gospel, knowing these things. We live a life fully surrendered to God, yielding to him, living to him. That's how you do spiritual warfare. You live for Jesus Christ. You live for Jesus Christ, and as you do that, you are dangerous in the spiritual realm that Paul is seeing and talking about. When we live connected to Jesus, we are placed in God's armor, and the attacks of Satan cannot break into our souls. I want to close by giving three principles of spiritual warfare that kind of just give us biblical wisdom as we walk this out. The first one is this. No satanic assault is stronger than God. No satanic assault is stronger than God. Yes, Satan has power. Yes, he is clever. Yes, he has insight. But we do not have to fear him. And if you're afraid of the demonic realms, read your Bible. Read your Bible. There's nothing that we need to fear of in Satan. We have to have a respect and an awareness he's there, not a respect for who he is as a person, but an awareness that he's there, but we don't have to fear him because he's a defeated foe. The spirit of the living God is stronger than anything else in this universe. And when you give your life to Jesus Christ, when you become a child of God, the spirit of the living God comes inside of you and fills you. And then you are able to stand. And there's nothing else in this world that can defeat the action and the work that God has done in your heart and your soul. 1 John 4 says this, You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? Have you come before him and said, God, I need you in my life. I repent and I ask you to come in. If you've done that, then he reigns and lives inside of you. So when you become a Christian... Satan cannot touch you because the spirit of the living God lives inside of you. I want to give a little pastoral word here because sometimes when people get into this realm, they do things that they were probably taught at a different church or taught in different ways. But when it comes to attacking Satan, we don't talk to Satan. We don't engage in conversation with Satan. The Bible says flee the devil and he will flee from you. It doesn't say engage and talk to him. We talk to Jesus. Jesus is the one who defeated Satan. He's the one that knows this realm more so and in depth than we ever will. He's the one we enact with. And so when I'm kind of in a warfare prayer mode and I'm praying for somebody with the knowledge of this realm that's going on, what I pray is, Jesus, will you rebuke and defeat Satan here? He has done it. He will do it. He will destroy him. He knows what he's doing when he does that. I don't. And so I say, Jesus, will you figure out what's going on here and will you defeat the evil one? Or I pray this, God, will you take the cross of Jesus Christ where Satan was defeated and will you place that and the power of that between any scheme of the devil and this person's life? Will you do that now in Jesus' name? See, those are the things that I do. And I'll show you why in a second. Second, No satanic plan can break God's armor. Satan can harass, he can oppress, he can attack Christians, but he cannot possess a Christian person. 
When we are born again, we are born into a living hope and nothing can overpower God's plan and purpose. Nothing can overpower what Jesus did on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, 8 to 10 says this, Be careful that no one takes you captive through the philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of this world rather than Christ. For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Jesus Christ, and you have been filled by him who is the head over every ruler and authority. You are filled by him. Notice it doesn't just say you're touched by him. You are filled. God has taken up residence inside you. Therefore, nothing can come in and possess you from the demonic realm. Because they don't have the authority to come in and do that. There's nothing stronger than God living within you. Satan can't possess you because he has been disarmed when it comes to Christian people. Later on in Colossians, in verse, the same chapter, verse 15, it says this, that he disarmed the rulers and authorities, those things listed here, disgraced them publicly. Jesus triumphed over them with the cross. He disarmed Satan by the cross, and he will defeat Satan when he comes again. And in the meantime, between those two events, we may be harassed and attacked, but we stand because nothing can overpower us. Now I know the question that you have in your mind. If that is true, then what about when bad things happen to Christian people? If that is true, then what about when bad things happen? Does, it, does Satan ever win in this life, the answer is no. Satan doesn't win. So what happens when bad things happen? I think the question reminds me of a story in John 9 where there's a person who is blind. There's a man who is blind and the disciples came to Jesus and said, tell us, why is this man blind? Is it because he sinned or is it because his parents sinned? And if you remember that story, Jesus says, if you heard that story, Jesus says, neither the fact that he's blind has nothing to do with sin. You see, that is how we think when we're attacked, isn't it? When we go through life's difficulty, when all of a sudden something hits our life that is a hardship or trial or a tragedy that we don't understand, we often think, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to make this happen? Maybe if I went to church enough, maybe if I did this enough, maybe if I did that enough, then this wouldn't have happened or affected me. And that's all false thinking. Jesus Christ says it wasn't anything to do with things in this world. He said this young man is born blind because God had a glory purpose to it. So then we read that and we think, okay, so if I go through tragedy and suffering, then there must be some purpose God has for me. So I've got to search out that purpose and figure it out. Maybe, but maybe not. Remember, the scripture is showing us there's a world we don't understand. And we may be going through a difficult time in this world because God has a purpose for it in the world that we don't even know of. We may not even know why we are doing, going through this trial. It might have something to do with nothing in this plane of reality, but we won't understand fully till we get to the other side of this. Remember, this isn't all the be-all end game. There's a whole reality that we don't understand that God is ruling and railing over and part of and in battle with, and things may happen in this world because it has an effect on that world, and we don't know. What I believe happens when bad things happen, it's not that Satan is winning, but it's that God is using the brokenness of this world. He's using the fallenness of this world to do something that we may not totally understand in this day and age. 
But in that state of not understanding, we have to be very, very careful. Because when tragedy comes, and when suffering and hardship faces us, as human beings living in this world, we have two options, and only two options. And both of those options were listed out in the book of Job, in the characters of Job and the characters of Job's wife. When tragedy and suffering comes, we have two options and only two options. The first one is to run away from God. To run away from God. That's what Job's wife told Job to do. She said to him when he's going through um, immense suffering and trial, she looked at him and said, curse God and die. That's option one. That's one option we have when we're facing trials and sufferings. The second option we have is what Job did. And he didn't do it right, he didn't do it perfectly, and we're not going to do it right, and we're not going to do it perfectly, and we're probably going to bounce bef- around in this thing. But Job came to a place where in his brokenness, in his utter desperation, and in the pain, and in the sorrow, and in the misunderstanding, and the wondering why God would let me do this, Job makes this incredible statement where he says, though he slay me, I will trust in him. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. When suffering and hardship comes, we have two choices. We either run away from God or we run into the arms of God. Those are our only two choices. When bad things happen in this life, it's not so much about the why. Why did this happen? Why did this happen? We try to figure it out. It's about who. Who are you going to run to? What direction are you going to go? Are you going to run to God or are you going to run away from God? The question of who is more important than the question of what or why? Because that's the reality of where we live in. And what does it mean to run into God's, harm, God's arms in a suffering, horrible tragedy and trial? It means you're just broken and you go before him and say, God, I can't do this. I don't know if I can face another day. I don't know how I'm supposed to. It doesn't mean we put on this false, fake smile and say, oh, Jesus is wonderful, everything's great. No, we live in the pain of the reality, but we acknowledge God while we're there. And we say, God, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And I believe when you are facing a suffering that's beyond you, when you're facing a tragedy that you can't handle, when you acknowledge God in that tragedy and suffering, you are doing warfare on a level that you will never understand in this life. But when tragedy comes, you acknowledge God as broken and through as many tears and misunderstandings as you can. And in doing that, you are standing against the forces of evil. It looks different. We picture standing against the forces of evil as big, strong, I'm powerful. No, in our brokenness, in our weakness, in our misunderstanding, when we want to run away from God, but we're not going to just because we know who he is and we know enough, we're going to stay in this, even though everything in our heart wants us to say, why are you doing this to me? We're going to stay and acknowledge him. See, that's what it looks like. That's warfare on a level we don't understand. But it's warfare that's powerful nonetheless. And finally, satanic evil cannot prevail over the church. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Satan cannot prevail over the church. The Holy Spirit indwells us as his people both individually as well as corporately, it says in 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2. If you want to stand against the devil's schemes, another way you do that is you hang around God's people. 
You hang around God's people. You stay close. If you notice all the armor that God put on us, the helmet, the shield, the sword, the belt, it all protects the front. A Roman soldier was very vulnerable in the back. There is no protection in the back. Because when Roman soldiers fought, they fought in pairs back to back. They had each other's back. The church of Jesus Christ covers our back. The church of Jesus Christ is what protects one another. So when we're facing something we don't understand, we gather around the person afflicted and we build them up. We make our presence known. The powerful presence of the church in the midst of trial is an amazing, amazing thing. That's why we also have to be careful when we're tempted to gossip against other people in the church, when we're tempted to criticize other people in the church, when we're tempted to pull apart and rip apart other people in the church, when we're tempted, if you have those temptations, you need to run to Jesus and tell him about it and ask for that healing because the protection of the body of Christ and the solidness of the body of Christ in trial and in battle is so critically, critically important. In this battle, God has given us all we need. He's given us his truth, his righteousness, his peace, his trust, his salvation, and his word. We also need each other. We need each other's presence, each other's prayers, each other's encouragements, not discouragements. And in doing that, we stand in this battle. Jesus is our living hope. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And though Satan has an edge right now in terms of the ability to attack and harass, a day is coming when Jesus is going to come again and he will destroy the enemy once and for all. No more sin, no more attacks, no more disease, no more sadness, and he will rule and reign. And in the meantime, while we're in battle, we look to that Christ. Let's do that together, church, as we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the fact that though we are engaged in a battle, we are not powerless. Though we are engaged in a battle, you haven't left us unprotected. Though we're engaged in a battle and things happen in life that we don't understand, you with the loving patience of a wise good father knows that we don't understand everything in this life and you welcome us to be with you in those things that we don't understand and as we turn and look to you I thank you that it's an act of great strength in the side of the battle so God I pray for all of us that you would bring us into close communion with you that you would bring us into close knowledge of who you are that you would turn our hearts to you more fully than even they are now so that we may stand. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.